For starters, I, I think that it's really important, the past. We often forget that the past is full of lessons for all of us. Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I am your host, Tim Silverwood, and our guest on the podcast today is Emily Jatteth, who is the curator of ocean science and technology at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Uh, Emily is also an underwater archaeologist, a maritime archaeologist, so we take a very fascinating glimpse at her wondrous career. But first things first, a quick update on the Ocean Impact Pitch Fest 2021. We are midway through the campaign now. We've only got three weeks left for you to get your applications in. Applications close on the 21st of September 2021. And just remember, it is a two-step process. So you really want to quickly go and submit your written form. That's very simple, completed online at our website. And then you'll get notified to submit your up to three-minute pitch video. So I cannot stress enough, get your written form in quickly so you know that you're on your way to submitting your up to three-minute pitch video. And of course, this year, there is two divisions. The Ocean Impact Pitch Fest 2021 is global. There's no age restrictions. As long as you can demonstrate that you're now or in future going to be improving the health of the ocean, then you can apply to that one. But the HP Generation Impact Incubator, that's a special program for those residing in Australia who are 35 years or under. So Pitch Fest, global, Generation Impact, must be residing in Australia, and a key decision maker in your organization must be age 35 or under. So it's been a remarkable few weeks. Uh, we really wanna make sure over the next three weeks, up until the 21st of September, that as many people as possible are aware of the Pitch Fest campaign. So please share it around. Look, Emily Jadif, I've had a wonderful, wonderful relationship with her. OIO's had a fantastic time building our organization alongside this incredible institution. If you're ever in Sydney and we don't have lockdowns, you've really got to go and check out the National Maritime Museum located in the heart of Darling Harbour with considerable amount of water frontage and remarkable vessels you can tour. I've been there for a range of events over the years, including the TEDx Darlinghurst event where Emily gave a really powerful TED talk all about the importance of science and that in this day and age when we're so hasty in our demands to have information and answers quickly, we have to slow down and trust the science and trust the process and we will get the solutions and the answers that we want in the long term. So it's a fascinating conversation. I uh, really enjoy working with Emily and the whole team at Sea Museum. I'm sure you'll enjoy this fascinating conversation with Emily Jatif. Thank you for tuning in to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm very excited to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today, Emily Jatif, who is the curator of ocean science and technology at the Australian National Maritime Museum and a maritime archaeologist. Not every day you get to speak to one of those. So thanks for joining the podcast, Emily. Oh, thanks, Tim. It's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here today. 
And I would like to start by acknowledging that I am talking to you today from Darug and Gundagara land in the beautiful Blue Mountains. And I acknowledge all the traditional owners throughout, the, throughout Australia and pay my respects to them and their culture. And even in these dark times, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful to be on this land. So that's how I would like to start. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And I'll certainly add that I'm tuning in today from Garingai country on the northern beaches on the outskirts of Sydney and pay my deep respects to elders past, present and emerging. So we've had, you know, a number of wonderful interactions over the years, Emily, and, you know, I don't think anyone who has ever met you or interacted with you could not say that your energy, your enthusiasm and your spirit that you bring to the world is, um, is just such a beautiful thing. So I wanted to firstly acknowledge and, and, and thank you for that. Your energy is, um, is definitely something which is very valuable, I think, to some of the spaces that you, that you play in. Thanks, Tim. It's so out, make me blush. <laughs> it's a great space to be in. I've just felt so welcomed ever since um, showing up in Sydney, I guess three and a half years ago uh, to work on this program. Everyone's just been so welcoming and warm across the nation and across the city and even across the planet. So there's a reason for the happy. <laughs> I love it. So let's just take the listeners on a little bit of a journey because hmm. doing this podcast preparation it's a very unique backstory and origin story and career. So let's have it in your words. It's a big question, so I'm going to let you waffle as you require. But tell us about your life and your unique career and particularly why this love and this fascination for the ocean. Well, I'm a good waffler. So thanks for the freedom there. Um, yeah, well, I grew up in the mountains of Washington State. So in the middle of nowhere in this tiny little valley called Maha Valley. And we have water, but they're little tiny lakes. So I suppose I grew up a mountain girl. I didn't dive much as a child. I'd go to the beach with my parents and, and swim in the ocean, and I always loved it. But my most of my maritime or in-water interactions were sailing a, an old sailboat on the lakes with my friends and tipping it over. And uh, so I, I wasn't an, an ocean person. But I, I had a couple of bumps and bumps and bobs as I grew up and decided what I wanted to be. I started out in theater and I uh, went to the University of Oregon. And one day my teacher pulled me aside and just said, you, you can't do this. You're bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, had to, I had to make a change. I thought, oh, First I'm pivot. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, and, uh, and so I went into art history, archaeology, because I was always really interested. I read a lot of archaeology books when I was a kid. I mean, I think on, on one of my first solo hikes in the mountains when I was about 16 or 17, that's the only book. I took a fishing rod with me and a bag of marshmallows and a book on archaeology. And I broke, I broke my fishing rod within about the first two hours. I had to eat the marshmallows and read the book by uh, candlelight. But... So I love it. I love it. I always have. And uh, I paid my way to go to a field school in Cyprus. It's a great field school, middle of nowhere, uh, Hellenistic sites, as well as some Paleolithic sites. And I spent the summer down a well. We'd have to pump it out in the morning and then excavate during the day. And I came back and I thought, all right, I really, really like that. 
And then I found out about the Harvard Alexandria, all the work that had been done there. And I thought, you can do this underwater. That sounds even more fun. So I decided to learn to dive, got my dive tickets and found the program that would accept me in as an underwater archaeology student at the undergraduate level. Finished that, happened to meet a uh, life partner uh, at the same time, which is quite nice. Um, can't, not very many people that you can say you, you met on a shipwreck. And um, it's, and I, um, yeah, so I think that that was my introduction to maritime archaeology. And uh, I just... What is it about archaeology, though? I mean, you said it was a, an early fascination. Just talk us through what it is that attracts you so much to that process. Archaeology. Oh, good question. For starters, I, I think that it's really important, the past. We often forget that the past is full of lessons for all of us. You know, I mean, historians should be really revered. We should listen to the information that we have before. I mean, we're, we're getting a lot of that. I see on social media, sometimes people will post up things from the 1913-18 pandemic. And, it's a, and, and, and you can see the shock as people read this and think, oh, they were wearing masks too. Well, yeah, of course they were wearing masks too. It was a pandemic. <laughs> like we, it's, we're so quick to forget that all of this, a lot of this has happened before and that there are deep and abiding lessons that we can learn from history. So I always thought that archeology span was a part of that story that was still a mystery. So you can uncover the holes in history by doing archeology. span So it helps you to fill in that narrative and helps you then to really make a difference in the world because you're contributing to our knowledge of where we've come from. And hopefully then that can inform where we're going. So it made me feel like I was part of something big, I think. Awesome. Okay, so take us back to that, uh, that unique career then. So you're, you're doing your studies now. Where were you doing these studies in archeology? span Florida. Yeah. Yeah, Florida, which was great. Um, I'd only been to visit my grandmother down in South, South Florida. So I had this opinion of what Florida looked like. You know, I thought Miami basically. And I got off the plane in Pensacola, Florida, which is where the school was. And it didn't look like Miami. And I almost got right back on the plane. I said, mom, where am I? I don't know. <laughs> but it was so beautiful. The Florida Gulf Coast is really at that time was unexplored. The reefs were fantastic. It was just this really quiet, almost sort of a little bit northern, northern beaches appeal to it. And um, I was really lucky because I was in a program that made you get in the water. So we spent all summer diving on shipwrecks. I really, really learned a lot in that program. And then I decided to go work for um, private industry. So I went to work for a company in Charleston, South Carolina, which is another hideous town. And, um, and I worked there for, for a few years. First as a laboratory manager, so that was great. I managed all of the collections. So that's um, from a variety of periods of sites, particularly throughout, throughout that area. There's a lot of interlap or overlap, excuse me, overlap between um, Dutch, Spanish, and early English and Native American populations. So the artifact assemblages were really diverse and, and varied. And then I decided, I um, one of my colleagues was a 
she was better lab manager than I was. So I said, look, you do it. You do it. You be the lab manager. And I'll go, I want to go back out in the field and be a field archaeologist again. So then I started doing that. And that was great fun, just, you know, beating through the bush and, and taping your pants to your socks to keep the bugs out and hiding from snakes and macheteing trees. So, you know, it, it was a bit of adventure, a bit of change. Yeah, so I did that for a while. How old are you at this stage? Um, Mid-20s, mid-20s, oh. early to mid-20s, yeah. And um, then... I found out a good friend of ours has a job website called Underwater Archaeology and History Jobs. He's had it for ages. And he found out about a project that was happening that James Cameron was running. It's a dive to the Titanic. And he wasn't supposed to post it, apparently, but he did. And it said, send in your interview tape and... You know, then we'll we'll see if you can be one of our archaeologists. So I did tape, it. Interview not, not a CV, an interview tape? No, it's like, a, you know, you answer the questions on the screen. and okay. um, So because they have to know if you're going to be any good on television, I suppose. It makes sense. And um, I had a friend who had a camera. So I said, do this with me. And I sent it in and I actually got, I actually got it. Wow. So um, that was, that was a fantastic voyage, which I'm sure we can cover elsewhere. And then I decided I needed a master's degree. So I decided to get a master's degree. And that was in? Maritime archaeology. Oh, very good. <laughs> and that's when we started our um, big Australian adventure. So that was at Flinders University in South Australia. Great. And so how many years have you been in Australia now? Been in Australia now in, to oh, well, full time since 2008. Great. And we're very lucky to have you here. And and hubby and family, they've obviously followed you along the way or have they got their own, you know, beautiful reasons for wanting to be here as well? Oh, oh well, I happen to marry a maritime archaeologist. Perfect. So uh, it worked out really well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. So you've obviously just given us a bit of a, uh, a glimpse into maritime archaeology, but um, it's something that, you know, even me as someone who works in the ocean field, don't know uh, an immense amount about. So, you know, what, you know, what is it? How is it done? How has it been done in the past versus now? And maybe this is an opportunity, you know, to even tell us a little bit more about that tale of the project working on the Titanic, because I can imagine at such a depth that would have had its own levels of complexity and things. But yeah, give us a bit of a snapshot of maritime archaeology, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, maritime archaeology, it's a much broader field than I think a lot of people even realize, because I'm sure the first thing that springs to mind is shipwrecks. Uh, shipwrecks are, of course, one of the most often studied objects, because it is a giant object by underwater archaeologists or maritime archaeologists. Um, but they also look at uh, a submerged sites of varying types. So those can be sites that are, have been submerged recently or were submerged a long time ago. For example, there was a maritime archaeological team out of Flinders and JCU and I believe UWA that just found the oldest submerged um, indigenous site off the mm -hmm. coast of Western Australia. It's about 7,000 years old. 
which is a fantastic find and really hard to do because a lot of the time um, indigenous sites or indigenous um, prehistoric sites are identified by lithics or stone because that's what you're using for tools which can you think just think about finding flaked or shaped tools on the bottom of the ocean like you have to be able to identify which rocks have been naturally shaped and which rocks have been shaped by humans, which is a, 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 an ama amazing feat in of itself. So shipwrecks of, of all types and flavors and shapes and um, submerged sites. And some people even study sites on land that have maritime connections. Mm -hmm. A lot of those when I was working in the U.S. So I studied a lot of um, wharfs systems um, and sort of harbor fortifications, things like that. So for example, one site that I worked on in South Carolina is in the midst of um, rice flats, right? So very low lying in South Carolina, so really good for growing rice. And there were plantations there during the mid 19th century. And during the Civil American Civil War, um, there was an amazing woman named Harriet Tubman who had been a slave and raised, raised up the people and um, sort of attacked the plantation and came ashore at this wharf location. And then they burned the plantation. So it was a really amazing and particularly female-led encounter. There were definitely quite a lot of other people involved, but um, it was a fantastic site to investigate, something that has such deep importance for American history. So they can be on land, they can be in the water, they can be over here, they can be over there. So um, that's sort of the scope of what maritime archaeological sites are. There's more to it. I bet there is. So one thing, I guess, is first identifying the site, and then it must be, I suppose, about studying the site. So yeah. maybe take us to this particular example where you, you got the gig working on the Titanic project. Um, yeah, run us through what is entailed in, in getting a detailed study of something which is seemingly so difficult to access. Sure. I think um, I might just quickly, most research projects, I mean, maritime archaeology, we run it using the scientific method. So just like most of science. So most of the time, you're only going to go look at a site if you have a research question that you need to answer. And we don't tend to excavate sites fully unless you need to. So there's often a um, sort of idea that we'll excavate about 10% of the site and leave the rest for future generations or do it on a rolling basis. So you don't ever take any more than you need to answer the questions that you want to answer, unless you're doing it as a rescue mission. So a lot of archeology span happens as rescue missions. You know, We need to dredge the harbor here so come document the shipwreck in full before we get it out of there. So those are the two, there's research led and then there's sort of res rescue archeology span And then there's the whole other picture, which is going to the Titanic with James Cameron, which is both a research project and a documentary. And it's a live to air video, or excuse me, live to air, whatever, taping. So there were three different crews on board. There was the research crew, there was the documentary crew, and then there was a live broadcast crew. So for me, I'm interested in the archaeology, but I'm just, 
I'm absolutely blown away by how fascinating all of these other teams are and what they're doing. <laughs> and then the, the the team on board the research ship, the academic Mistyshlaz Keldish, which is an old ship. And we're diving in these submersibles that were built in the 80s and they're ancient. And the oceanographers and the technologists, you know, they're able to just fix these things with duct tape dreams and spit <laughs> and, and send you down, you know, all the way to the bottom of the Atlantic. Um, so the archaeology on Titanic is its own thing, but just the putting a project together of that scale, we were just, I think what I'm trying to say is we were just one small cog hmm. in that wheel. Um, so our role was to document, we had a couple of different spaces that we wanted to visit. So um, one of the driving factors was how deep can we get inside the wreck? using these very, very small, specially designed ROVs or remotely operated vehicles. And with the intent to explore the Turkish baths all the way down on, on the bottom of the vessel, which we were able to do. And then document that as thoroughly as possible using the ROVs and document as many other locations throughout as per our research plan and then share that information, research and share that information with the public via a um, virtual archive, which was the SciArc Titanic Digital Archive. There were some really interesting things that we were able to determine. I mean, one of them is the tile pattern from inside the Turkish baths. So a lot of people don't realize that the photo, a lot of the photographs of Titanic are actually of Titanic sister ships. Hmm. There were three ships of the line that were all very, very, similar. So when you look at a picture, you just kind of assume it's of Titanic, but it might actually be a Britannic or Olympic. So we were able to confirm how these areas on Titanic were laid out because the preservation at that depth is so good because it's an anaerobic environment and there's barely any oxygen down there. So you can actually say, oh, but this chair is just turned over like this and it's so I know that it would have been sitting like this because it's barely moved, even though it plummeted to the seafloor. Um, so, so that was, it was a fascinating project and a really valuable project to be involved with. Um, and I think a very unique project, probably in my career. <laughs> Just a quick one about the, oh. you know, the, the process and the practicalities oh. of it. So the depths at the vessel is at and how you would use the subs and then the ROVs. Just give us a bit of a glimpse at what was involved in actually going down there and doing that documentation. Sure. Uh, so there were usually about two dives per day. It takes a few hours to descend to the site and then you get maximum a couple hours on site and then a few hours to ascend. So you can do one dive in the day, one dive at night if conditions allow. So, you know, if the surface wells are high, you, you can't launch a submersible. Um, I mean, you can, and there were a couple of times that we did and it was very exciting, but you know, it's usually, you, you, don't, you don't push it unless you have to. So it's, a, it's about a 12, 12 to 13 hour dive altogether. Um, and you go down in groups of three. So there's the pilot, and then there's a videographer. Um, the director of photography went down with, with me. And then I was the ROV sort of pilot 
and um, communications at that on the, on those dives. So the dive down, you're just really sort of making sure that your plan is in place, that you know what you're going to do. Because when you get to the bottom, the time goes by like that. And it's the same thing on dives, diving a site on scuba. You know, you, you go down, you have to make sure you have all your gear, you have to have your underwater pencil so you can write, you have to have your slate, you have to have your measuring tapes if you're measuring, you know, you need, you need to make sure you have all your equipment because you can't just pop up and get something. You have to do a deco stop or, you know, it's going to put, it's good, your buddy has to come with you so it inconveniences everyone. So proper planning is incredibly important as it is in all scientific and research operations. So what is it? Someone says, you know, two is one and one is none. It's like a, a man should have lived by. You always have, you always have extras. So it's a 12-hour dive. Um, the time on the bottom would go super fast. You just deploy the ROV. You'd have an entry point. So either through a window or uh, we, most of the time we went down the, the grand staircase because it's a direct shaft that goes all the way down the center of the ship. And then you can just count decks to know when you get to the point that you need to get to and then progress forward as far as you can. Uh, they're tethered remotely operated vehicles. So you do have to be really conscious of any protruding, you know, glass or, or excuse me, protruding anything mm. to make sure that you don't catch your tether on that. Um, and then on the ascent, you would just sort of prep your notes, make sure you documented things properly. You're in constant communication with the surface. Eat your snack uh, and, uh, and make it back. Do it all again. <laughs> I love it how casually you're recounting a journey to, what, we're over 3,000 meters? What's the depth? Yeah, 3,500, uh, 3,800. Yeah. Oh, I had good buddies. I had good sub buddies. And good snacks yeah and i was not very old you know i was that was around the time of my life when i would happily leap off cliffs into the water which now i might think twice about any other you know, career highlights that you want to quickly recount before we we move on and talk a little bit more about you know your current role i mean yeah no i, I just have i've really enjoyed the whole thing it's been a it's been a circuitous snake of a career and whipped here and whipped there, but I've just I've just had a great time, and I'm still having a great time. <laughs> let's tell us. Um, let's go into a little bit then about your current time, your your role at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Um, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're tasked with there, and we might even use it as a stepping stone to talk more about the role of of museums. Sure, that'd be great. Um, I'm currently working at the Australian National Maritime Museum. And I manage, I'm the curator of ocean science and technology, and I am managing the museum's 10 year program in support of the ocean decade for sustainable development. Love it. Okay. Tell us um, a little bit about what you have done in your time at the museum to date and, and what the, the remainder of this tenure might look like for you. Sure. The, well, the museum, we, we, we had a brand change a few years ago, which was really, it was a really great, great move. And um, as part of that brand, we wanted to shift direction a little bit more to focus on contemporary issues. This is obviously an audience driven shift. So our audiences are saying, 
that we would like you to be a little bit more holistic as an organization in your approach to ocean. And it's also driven by our internal inspirational leadership who said, we really want to make this happen. I mean, if you don't have inspirational leadership who say, I think this is important and we're going to do it, then nothing happens. So I'm, I'm super grateful for that. Um, so the museum decided it wanted to start at this program and I got the job to do it. I'd been working for the museum sort of part-time for about three years before that. Um, I, I'd had a, a, I have a small child, well, I don't anymore, she's not small, but I had a very small child and I was living in the inner west I didn't I wasn't sure if I wanted a job and then they called me up and said we would like you to work on this regional remote remote touring program and I thought oh can I do it from home and they said yes and I said okay so it was great because I was able to work with regional remote communities from across Australia just a couple of days a week we got over five hundred thousand dollars in funding from the federal government to provide all of these communities with free access to exhibition resources. So it was an incredibly rewarding job and to develop this program that, that worked for the museum. So I think they hopefully rightly, I better knock on something, hope that I can maybe do something similar for the Ocean Science and Technology Division. And I've done my best over the last three and a half years and uh, we'll see where we can go in future. But um, I suppose over the last, three and a half years, which is how long I've, I've been in this position, my big moves have been to first find out what's going on in Australia and the world. So really just see where we all sit as a nation, as communities, as science organizations, research, you know, uh, business industry. So I've tried to reach out to all of these different groups individually and together to kind of get a, a feel for what people care about, what they're doing, what's important to them. So that's really understanding the situation has been, particularly in our nation, has been really important. Um, the second thing was we're a museum. We have to have a collection. That is vital. So we reached out to a number of groups, particularly CSIRO, who have super stuff, and they gave us massive collections. And people have been donating objects to us. I mean, sometimes they think, why do you want this old junk? This has just been sitting around in our garage. But I want it because it tells the story of oceanographic instrumentation innovation over a period of time. So by this point, we now have I know this is a lot of qualifiers, the largest collection of historical to contemporary oceanographic instrumentation in the Southern Hemisphere. The Science Museum London still has its beat, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're really, really proud of that. And we're going to keep building on that. So you have to have a collection in order to tell stories as a museum. And the third thing is profile and promotion, letting people know that we're here as an organization, that we care, and that we're willing to support and engage and hopefully tell stories. So that's sort of our three-pronged approach to what we've been doing over the last three years. Mm. And for those people tuning in who perhaps have not visited Sydney or haven't visited the, the Sea Museum, give us a bit of a, a glimpse of you know, what you can expect, obviously when things are opened up and humming along. Uh, yeah, tell us about the facility and, and the presence of, of the museum. Sure. Well, at the moment, it's not open, which um, which makes us all a bit sad. But 
you know, it gives us time to work on a number of projects behind the scenes, which is actually pretty exciting. So the Australian National Maritime Museum is located in Piermont on Darling Harbour. And we were built in the late night, oh, excuse me, when were we built? Ooh, <laughs> I'll add it to the intro. <laughs> <laughs> the Australian National Maritime Museum is located in Piermont on, on Darling Harbour. And one of the reasons that we're in that fantastic location is because we have a huge floating fleet. Uh, this includes vessels like Vampire, which is a destroyer, Onslow, which is a submarine, which is incredibly fun to tour, uh, particularly when um, COVID is, is not on. Um, a lot of our volunteers are ex-service people or just incredibly knowledgeable. So you're always guaranteed of a good tour on the Maritime Museum's vessels. We also have small craft. We have a number of tiny boats. We've got Tudo, which is in a refugee boat, which is wonderful. And Krite, which is a vessel that was used for a daring raid. Um, <laughs> we also have, oh, our newest acquisition is Doifkin, which was a small vessel uh, built as a replica of a Dutch exploration vessel. And that's hopefully going to be going out on Harbor tours again. Then we have the museum, which covers social history, military history, maritime history, ocean science and technology. I just finished an exhibition with the Sydney Institute of Marine Science and Port Authority of New South Wales, which was really fun, this sort of holistic above, below, and on the edge of Sydney Harbor. So it's always changing all the time. We have a we we really enjoy ourselves. It's an interesting space to fill. So recommend you come check it out. It is a really incredible space, and I just think to the experiences I've had there, and we're just so fortunate and you know lucky that we've got it here in our great city, and that it's such a a representation of 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 the world and all sort of gathered there together. So um, cool. Now one experience I had at the museum was the TEDx Darlinghurst uh, series last year in 2020, right in that little window before everything went pear-shaped. And you were, you were fortunate enough to deliver a really awesome speech. And it was called The Tortoise Approach to Solving Climate Change. And people can obviously search it and check it out online or add it to the show notes. But Tell me a little bit about that talk and you know why that was the talk that you wanted to give when you had that opportunity to stand on the little red dot. It is a, it is a heck of a process to think, all right, well, I really want to get picked, <laughs> <laughs> but I have to really believe what I say. Hmm. And that's the one thing that, that I think comes across in a TEDx talk is if someone doesn't believe what they say, it, it, it's authentic or they, or they feel authentic to me. I think that's really important. So I, I, spent many, I spent many nights sitting, thinking what I wanted to say. And then this one just jumped out at me because it is desperately important. And yet for some reason, it seems like it's so hard for us just to do. We expect things to happen quickly. And we expect the answers that we get now to be the right answers for always. We've got no capacity to accept that the answer that you have right now might be the best answer given the data 
that is currently available. But as the amount of data changes, that that answer might change and that that's okay. We just need to be a little bit kinder to science and a little bit more trusting that they know what the heck they're doing. And so that really, really resonated with me. And I had a really good time writing this. Just go a little bit deeper into that for us, um, presuming yeah. that people haven't gone there and had the, the chance to listen just yet. So you realized there was this very important conversation to seed around obviously the, the beauty of science and the yeah. fundamental importance, but that the very, you know, the foundation of science seems to be getting challenged and corroded by a very changing world that we live in the way we receive information. Yeah. Go a little bit more into, into that for the, for the listeners. Okay. So just a little bit more structure around the, the erosion talk. of science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I mean, I could, I could very easily tie it into COVID, but I don't okay. know if you want me to. You can do that. If you're, yeah. if you're following the science, we're happy to communicate it. <laughs> I think, I think one of the, the hardest things for us to understand is, is that science is telling a message that is based on the information that they currently have available. And that we need to trust that that message is based in scientific fact. So they have arrived at that point through rigorous research. I mean, most of us have no idea how hard it is to get things published in the scientific, in scientific papers and to really understand how difficult the process is to get something approved. They don't just go running to the media and say, I believe this, that doesn't happen. It takes a really long time for things to get approved to the point that they feel comfortable sharing it. Not like a lot of the rest of us who, who are happy to jump on the podium <laughs> at, the, at the first sign and, and, and say that, that you know what you're talking about. But I do trust science. I also trust that science sometimes needs time to come to the solution that works. And that along the way, they develop a lot of temporary solutions. Okay, so this might get us to the next stage. And then the next thing might get us to the next stage. And then the next thing to the next. And that it's a process. But as a lot of the time, we kind of tend to say, okay, we did the first stage. Why isn't it fixed yet? Mm. And then you get mad. And then you say, well, I don't trust science anymore. How is that actually helping any of us? And I noticed that a lot right now, um, particularly in, in the world in which we're living right now, we're getting so frustrated and we're getting a little tired of being at home, no matter, even if you live in the fabulous Northern beaches like Tim here, <laughs> it, it's hard for us to, to be kind and to be collaborative and to give people time but that's really what we need to do. They'll get there. Just, just cool it. And just how damaging and diabolical. <laughs> Go harder. <laughs> Go harder. You know, it, it's just it's so it's so damaging that it is right when we need the most confidence and the most support for science to do its greatest. 
it, it becomes corroded and it becomes corroded because you know ultimately people are scared but then the information ecosystem out there is so broken so damaged that it's risking the livelihood and the best performance of our greatest tool that we have in our chest oh very well said tim it's it it's true you get it from so many different places i can it completely sympathize sympathize with people not really knowing who to believe mm. i mean we struggle with that at, at maritime museums museums are often regarded as one of the highest trust organizations in the world it comes out in surveys all the time it's like doctors scientists museums and you think oh well that's a lot of responsibility and we take that very seriously because that is a lot of responsibility and if the public trusts you then you have to make sure that you're sharing the truth with the public. And I think scientists get frustrated a lot because they just want people to understand what they're talking about. They just want to share. And then when the information, as you said, gets eroded, gets corrupted, gets diluted, gets twisted, how do we expect them to just shoulder that bag again and go back out into the field and keep fighting for us which is what they're doing they're fighting for us they're like our frontline workers for the ocean so just you know give them a little space yeah and remember when you don't when you're not supporting them you know then some leaderships might see that as an excuse to not support them and to fund them and so the whole erosion process kind of it gets across the board there. Okay, we can we can wrap a little bow around that one. Thank you very much. Go and check out the TEDx talk though, team, because um, it's definitely worth a listen. I really enjoyed it as I sat there listening to you live. So I've got about two more questions, Emily, and then we're we're moving on. It was going to be the next one about the UN decade of ocean science for sustainable development. A bit of a sort of what is it? Why? What's the museum doing? Um, if you wouldn't mind talking to that one for me. No, it's my um, great pleasure. It's been my my heart home for the last 18 months, well, even before that, and will be hopefully for the next 10 years. So uh, we have committed as an organization to a 10-year program in support of the Ocean Decade, but you probably want to know what the Ocean Decade for Sustainable Development is. So the, the United Nations called for this decade a few years ago. They said, this is what we need. We need a decade committed to ocean science. It aligns with the sustainable development goals, particularly SDG 14, which is life below water, but also taps into a number of the other sustainable development goals, if you're familiar with those. So they have to do with, you know, equity and access to fresh water and they're across the board. So this is what we needed. We needed this ocean decade. And the reason we need it is because we need to bring people together. And bringing them together under the umbrella of the UN provides profile, platform, potential funding, and collaborative opportunities for not only new projects, but a number of incredibly significant international projects that are already underway and have been for many years. But they need this, and they need this opportunity for all of us to work together in order to achieve the goals that we need to achieve by 2030. 
So tell us a little bit then about what is on the table for the Maritime Museum and what you're working on. Sure. Oh, yeah. So I think can I before I do that, can I just tell you and you can you can cut it out if you don't want to, but some of the key points of the decade, because mm -hmm. I don't think that people like the ocean decade covers a variety of sort of key outcomes. And they're really significant. Like they, there's one on sustainable fisheries, right? So you've got industries working on the decade now. We have some, where 50% of Australian fisheries are, um, are sustainable. So that's amazing, right? Yeah. And then multi-hazard warning systems. Because what we need is we need everyone in the world to have the same access to early warning systems for any ocean set based hazards as we do here in Australia. So it needs to be equitable across the board. Marine pollution, that's a big one. Ocean mapping, understanding the ocean, ocean climate. So that's the Global Ocean Observing System and JEBCO, both of which have been in operation globally forever. I mean, you wouldn't even realize how many little devices are out in the ocean right now. I can show you a map, but they're just constantly in operation. Um, understanding ecosystems, obviously, we need to understand who lives in the ocean, and then big data. So if all these groups are working together, who, who's gonna store this data? And how do you make it publicly accessible? Obviously, there's some bits of data that people won't want to have publicly accessible. So that's a major roadblock to that particular project. And then the last one, which was kind of tacked on at the middle of last year, which is really exciting, but I'm glad it's in there, is public understanding, engagement, ocean literacy. So knowing about the ocean. And that's really where the museum comes in. So we have a role as an organization to help share stories, to help engage audiences, to help meet their needs um, and their interest in contemporary ocean narratives and to share the truth of what our science, sciences, our industries, our community organizations and various other groups are doing to kind of meet the aims of this decade. And we'll do that through exhibitions, events, visiting vessels, education programs, online things, a lot of online things at the moment, and anything else that we can think of. <laughs> Love it. You know, people that are seasoned listeners to the podcast will know that we love to provocate and talk about planet ocean and that we need to understand and look through our decisions through this lens of the ocean because by doing so, we can actually start to look at this uh, highly desirable, sustainable relationship with our humble planet. But what you're sort of saying there, it sounds like, is that the knowledge and the operations that have sort of been functioning have been somewhat disparate. And this, this coordinated decision to say, let's invest the time to bring it all together, to make it cohesive so we can start to make these collaborative informed decisions for the betterment of everyone because it is one ocean. Yeah, I think there's a perfect example is the Seabed 2030 project. Mm. So that is to map in high resolution the ocean by 2030. Incredibly important because if you actually, I mean, you think what do we have right now, it's about 15 to 18% of the ocean mapped at high resolution. 
That's very little. So this is a major initiative that's been going on for quite a while, map the ocean, map the ocean. We've been doing it since the turn of the last century. But because of all of these drivers, the Nippon Foundation signed on. So it's now the Nippon Foundation and Jebco Seabed 2030 project. And now that they're involved, all these other groups started signing on from industry to private research vessels. There are more private research vessels operating now than there ever were before, just more research vessels in total. So now they're all signing on to the seabed program and they're sending their data when they get it into this program. And that is now this massive international club and they've absolutely blown through their targets for how much that they they've mapped. They said, might be getting this kind of wrong, so forgive me in advance, but it's something like in the last 10 to 15 years, they've mapped as much as they had in the preceding 100. And if that isn't a case for cross multidisciplinary collaboration, then I don't know what is. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, you touched on the perfect little segue to my last question there, which is, I guess, those innovations and advancements that are taking shape right now. But maybe you could even talk to this point of, of innovation, maybe a little bit to the the role of OIO and, and what we're trying to do here by supporting and accelerating startups that are driven to improve ocean health. Um, yeah, just give us a bit of a sense check of why it's so fundamentally important we invest the time, the money, the energy uh, in innovation for a healthy ocean. Oh gosh, good question, big question. Well, number one is that I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. What you're doing is supporting industries that need the support and um, it's it's a vital role and we're really happy i individually and the museum organizationally are really happy to be a part of your narrative as much as we can because we need to give these companies the profile the visibility and the access to the markets that they need that they need to survive um, I think the two stage, one is that the ocean world is changing. I think I mentioned earlier that there are more research vessels in the ocean now than there ever were before, both publicly owned and privately nonprofit. There are more submersibles going down to the bottom of the ocean than there ever were before. We just had the limiting factor exploring deep sea off of Western Australia for a couple of weeks with the new um, UWA Deep Sea Center and Mindaroo Foundation. We've had Schmidt traveling across Australia with their 4,000 meter rated deep water ROV. So our access is amazing compared to what it was a few years ago. Our ability to record footage at that depth, to use AI to understand what creatures are inhabiting the depth. We're also moving into autonomous technologies. So as much as I always like being the one to dive in the dive suit, sometimes that's not the most economically friendly way forward. And so we're using a lot of robotics. So like, you know, unmanned, uncrewed surface vessels that can patrol Australia's waters and do oceanographic mapping or tiny little robots that can shoot out and map. I mean, the world is changing. So if we're not at the forefront of innovation, we're losing. <laughs> and I don't want us to lose. I like us too much. 
Love it. So, you know, based upon all that, it sounds to me like there's a sense of optimism. Things are moving in the direction. Is it still too slow? What's required to, to put it into a, onto a trajectory that would really satiate and satisfy, you know, you and others in the industry? Oh boy. Well, I'm a cheese ball. If you haven't figured that out by now. Uh, so I think probably my most important thing for us right now is to just be kind to each other, to continue to collaborate because that's where things really happen. And I like the ocean decade because it's a really comfortable way to do that. The aims of the decade, lots of people can see themselves in there. They can say, okay, I, there's a, there's a space for me there. I can understand that and I can help. So I think maintaining our positivity is vitally important because if you're sad and negative, there's not much you can do. I mean, yeah, it, the situation feels pretty darn dire. It sure does. And there are some changes that we need to make. We all know this, but we've got to maintain our positivity. Our ability as a species to adapt and change is one of the reasons that we're still here. <laughs> so I think that on a cheesy, cheesy note, that, that's what I think is most important. On a, um, on a less cheesy note, on a more scientific note, I think you need to check your work when you read things, make sure that you trust the source that it's coming from. And if you do, try and believe what they say. <sighs> that was kind of bad, but I think I know what you're trying to say. I've been teaching my daughter too long. Check your work. <laughs> Check your work. Awesome. Um, all right, Emily. So we've had a lovely chat now. We're going to wrap things up. So... Mm -hmm a little opportunity for you to um, maybe talk about anything that we didn't quite get to today. Maybe there's some things that we talked a lot about today that you want to make sure people know the destination of where to go to find out more. Um, mm. Yeah, I'll leave it to you just to, to wrap a nice little bow around our chat today. Yeah, Let's see. I think... You know, there are a lot of positive things that are going on out there. Um, let's see. What do I want to say? I don't know. Even just talking to, I mean, we did talk about Ocean Decade quite a bit just then. Is there yeah. some destinations where, where you want to send people or... Um, obviously, we've, we've already mentioned to people where they can go and, and listen to your TEDx talk and obviously yeah. talk about whether the museum, any particular projects or sites they should go and Oh, uh, should I mention OOF? Out. I haven't mentioned OOF. Yeah, do that one. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. Well, I suppose to wrap it up, I'd probably better mention the upcoming first major exhibition that the museum's doing in support of the UN Decade. And that is called One Ocean, Our Future. And it will be coming soon to a museum near you as soon as we are out of lockdown. So we're guessing summer. <laughs> so um, we're really excited about this. It's a broad brush look at some of the issues that are facing, some of the wonders of the ocean, the issues that they face, and some of the research that's being done by scientists and community to help bring us to a positive future. Um, it will equip you for understanding the rest of the decade, 
which we'll be bringing to you in bite-sized bits over the next 10 years. We'll be doing targeted exhibitions on sustainable fisheries. Our next one's on sea level rise. We're looking at past, present, future sea level rise, which we thought we'd bring in a little Atlantis and high Brazil um, to kind of get, get in the kitties and then, and then break it down so that they can understand the role of Antarctica in um, sea level rise and um, some of the problems facing uh, the Torres Strait Islanders in particular. And um, yeah, so we're always open for ideas and collaboration. I think that's the key that I'd like to end up on. We are a public institution and I work for you. So it is our job to tell the stories that our public really want to hear and to make sure that we're giving you the right information and connecting you to what you want to and need to know. And particularly for Tim and Nick's innovation group, we're always happy to support uh, work, work at the wharf. A couple of years ago, we were really thrilled to work with the Seabin Foundation and the splashdown of the Seabin there. Uh, we do have wharfside facilities. So if anybody ever needs to chuck anything in the water, give us a call. Love it. Well, we've certainly enjoyed establishing and nurturing this relationship with you and the museum and i just wanted to send a big thank you for your time today and for all that you do for planet ocean uh do you want to sign off and do you want to tell people where they can follow you or find out any more information about you sure um right back at you right back at you tim it has been an absolute pleasure and we are so thrilled to be working with you hopefully a lot longer into the future and see you in person again someday <laughs> if anybody wants to know more i am on twitter although i'm really bad at it um, my colleague kaylee bartnicki is also on there and she's a lot better at it than i am so you can talk to kaylee or um, please just look us up at the museum we're always here to help well thanks again for tuning in everyone thank you emily and we'll see you soon my pleasure all best Bye, Tim. <laughs>